0: U.S. Olympic athletes, adult film stars, and
1: sportsman drag racers. Big Jed, how are you? Luke, I am well. Good to be with you. Um, I know you're home from a long trip out west, 10 weeks in the motorhome. So we're going to talk about that in the show and, and hear all the, the good stuff that you had to say about the, the your trip out west with the fam. But, um, you know, other than that, just uh, a normal time around here Weather's starting to turn really super nice you got uh, a little gary playing some baseball that you got back to at home so things are starting to feel kind of normal again luke got you back in illinois where you belong and and we're we're going to have a normal type show now so it feels good
0: we got home just in time we we pulled in the driveway about three o'clock yesterday afternoon and the first baseball practice of gary's season was it seven thirty? We missed not a thing. It's fantastic. <laughs> Perfect. Shouts to the listeners. Um, I hope my sound quality is a little better than it's been in, yes. the, in the last two months. I am back in the office, back with the blue Yeti boom mic. So uh, yeah, man, feels good to be back. It was a, it was a blast on the trip, but uh, it is good to be here. It's good to hear your voice. It's good to talk about some sportsman drag racing. Big Jed, you're going solo on the first segment here. We had a little scheduling conflict, so you're talking Capital City Classic, and I will come back in a little bit later on, and we will rehash everything Spring Fling Million to the tune of, could KB win in a wheelbarrow? Um, Is Jeff Sarah the best racer we've ever seen? What else did we talk about, Big Jed? Um, The best story
1: of redemption to ever happen at the drag strip.
0: Yeah, is Peep's Perfect in every final, or just one? And could the wind blow any harder in Las Vegas? All that and much more. But first,
1: PJ North. No. All, right. All right, guys, welcome uh, back to the show. Um, we're going to be Lukeless for just a little bit. Uh, our schedules were really struggling to, to sync up this week and that's uh, as much my problem as it was anyone so i apologize for that but uh, luke will be joining us in a little bit and we'll we'll talk spring fling million with luke because he was there and got a, a real good view of of that incredible event out there on the west coast but uh, before he gets here uh, i'm going to talk about an event that i was at I was in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, at Capital City Motorsports Park, and that was the inaugural Capital City Classic. So Ben Willis uh, is the the man behind the scenes, actually in front of the scenes. He's he's all everything down there now. Ben's part of the ownership group, and uh, you know he they they bought the racetrack. sometime last year early last year I believe or maybe late 20 and Ben had immediate plans to to do some big things and he announced this race last year sometime and it's uh it was groundbreaking really for uh a track owner to do something along these lines in these this part of the country so really excited to talk about it was really excited to be at the capital city classic it's a 50k 100k 50k so 50 on friday and sunday and 100 on saturday Uh, guaranteed numbers or guaranteed purse Um, they had a cap of 350 entries got all over that which was really cool to see and all in all it was a wonderful wonderful event and uh, and some big time winners but you know, the, I guess the first thing I'd like to talk about about the Capital City Classic was the track improvements. I've discussed those here on the show quite a bit, and I just can't say enough about what that group is doing with that facility. It, uh, it was arguably the nicest racing facility in Alabama for quite some time. And, you know, just for whatever reason, things had started to slip there a little bit. And I think most of our listeners have heard us discuss Montgomery Motorsports Park as what it's formerly known as and kind of the uh, direction that it had taken. It was still a really good place to race, but it just wasn't quite, uh, you know, blowing people away when they come in. So being in the ownership team there have decided to do quite a bit of improvements. Um, and, and by and large, this thing is unbelievable. And it gets better every time I go down there. Super excited about the improvements that that team is making down there at Capital City Motorsports Park. And really just from their point series, uh, which is 7,500 a day, uh, Saturday and Sunday, once a month, basically. To uh, to these big events like this, they're doing street outlaws, they're doing grudge racing, they're doing heads up racing, pro mods. These guys have it all down there. So it is an incredible place to to go watch racing. Incredible place to go get to race. So if uh, you know if you're listening to this and you have uh, an opportunity <clears throat> to get to Capital City Motorsports Park and and get on the racetrack or just enjoy watching some racing. I don't think you'll be disappointed at all. I just I really couldn't find a way you'll be disappointed, even right down to the concessions. Uh, the the Tapley family, Gary Tapley and his family, are kind of managing the concessions there, and these folks make real food, and uh, and they grill it right there in front of you. It's real meat, and and great eats and drinks all the way around. They'll do some specials here and there, pork chops, chili, barbecue, all kind of stuff. So. You, uh, you really can't go wrong with the concessions. And that's just a, another testament to what they've turned the place into, just a family-friendly facility where the, the racing action is, is super fun to participate in and certainly to watch. Uh, it's, a, it's a racetrack where people can and do go very, very fast, very long. So, you know, that's uh, something I want our, our listeners to know about the facility and this particular event, the Capital City Classic. Uh, we get down there and there's 320-ish entries every day. Like I said, it was a 350 cap. So it got all over that number. And I really think it would have filled it up. It was, uh, it was unseasonably challenging from a weather standpoint. It wasn't rainy, but the temps were cool. And you know we're we're talking low 60s for the most part, and the wind was blowing 15, 16 miles per hour. I don't know what that put the wind chill or the feels like, but I can tell you it feels like cold. Uh, when you're from Alabama and you're used to this time of year producing a little bit better weather, uh, it was it was challenging. It was challenging to to dial the car and and stay consistent and get the you know the kind of racing performances that we all want. With those winds and that cool air but you know really it didn't impact the racing it didn't look like the racing was was still very very good we did get a warmer day on sunday and very very little wind and it went from hoodie and long pants to shorts and t-shirt weather in just a few hours so Typical Alabama weather swing, but again, the racing action was really, really good. And, and the, the guys ran a great, efficient program. They have, uh, have been dealt, they're right in the heart of Montgomery. So they've been dealt some fairly challenging curfews, but uh, again, 320 or so entries each day and they never hit curfew. We uh, was able to get all the racing done every night, and, and wrapped up without you know having to to fuss and holler on the, the microphone to get racers up there to beat the curfew. Everybody came around in a fairly timely manner. So that was a really good thing. And um, avoiding the curfew with that many entries was uh, was pretty awesome. Uh, again, very efficient program, track worked great, and uh, it led to some tremendously good and tight racing as you always see in those big bracket races. So that was really cool. But, you know, a highlight for me, and and again, it's a little bit tough for me to be the only one talking, by the way. And then you add that we're just coming off a week where I was the subject. I didn't, didn't like that. We've, we've had that show saved for a little while. We were planning to plug it in where we needed it. I was just hoping we wouldn't ever need it. But for those of you that listened and tuned in and gave me some feedback, I certainly appreciate the, the kind words. It was fun to get to tell my story, but still, I don't find it very interesting. But so I'm not a I'm not a brag on your kid kind of parent. Uh, you know, obviously, I love JJ and I'm very proud of him. But it was it was a highlight for me uh, at the Capital City Classic. Uh, JJ was asked to be the lead announcer, and. Um, you know he's 16 years old. We we all know he's capable of of being the announcer and calling the numbers and breaking down the run for you. He does a good job of that. Um, again, that's not braggadocious by any means, but it's facts. He he's he's learned how to deliver that information very well. But he's never been the lead guy in a, a race so large, um, where he was pretty much on an island. Um, I tried to help him all I could. I got to call a few rounds here and there. I was racing, of course, and, and the racing went fairly well for me. I was able to go quite a few rounds over the weekend. Uh, very fortunate there. And, um, when I wasn't racing or, or getting the car ready and so on and so forth, I, I did go up to the booth and give him some relief for the most part. He was up there for hours upon hours and uh, he was doing his thing on the microphone and it was a motor mania tv race it was uh it was live streamed by our great friends at uh at motor mania tv so you know he uh he was getting a lot of feedback as well as was i and you know it was kind of weird really because again he's 16 i've made the jokes over the years where you know he went from this cute little kid calling the numbers to now you know he's like, what's
0: up dad you know,
1: i'm gonna go announce dad you know he. He just kind of grown in his voice and those things, and that's come a long way. Well, so many people thought that it was me. Um, I, I found myself in the staging lanes a couple of times, and I would see a racer out there, and he'd be like, uh, "How are you down here? You're on the microphone." So no, that's not me. That's that's obviously uh, somebody else, and it's JJ. The old sounds just like you got dropped on me probably a hundred times over the weekend. So. That was fun. That was pretty cool. And uh, again, it was a highlight for me because I got to sit back and really listen to him. And I got to hear so many people give him positive feedback and words of encouragement, which you, you know, you always want to see for your for your son or your child. And the fact that he was able to to get so much positive feedback from the people that were listening and tuning in was you know, it was a very proud moment to say the least. I don't think, uh, anybody, any of us would feel any different. So that was, uh, that was a highlight for me. I was, uh, I was super proud to, to see where he had come to. And, you know, he's never really been challenged with being up in the booth for hours upon hours. And, uh, he, he accepted that challenge and he did it really well. So, uh, I don't think he listens to the podcast anymore. I think he's kind of over that he used to listen all the time and say, Dad, I heard you talking about this or that and heard Luke talking about this or that. But he I uh, don't think he's a listener anymore. I think he's got better things to do. So but but if you listen, I've told you in person, but your dad's proud of you. So uh, it was a really awesome job and really looking forward to the next one. Uh, who knows when that'll be, but we'll definitely uh we'll definitely see him continue to do that for quite some time. So outside of me gas bagging now and bragging on my on my little guy not so little anymore there was uh there was quite a bit of racing that took place again all those entries and the, the pits were full of talented and very accomplished racers i mean it was it was a star-studded field you know the, the williams brothers kevin brannan nasty nick scotty and just the list goes on, Jeff, Sarah, and on and on and on and on, uh, just nasty hitter after nasty hitter in the pit. So the racing was was tough. It was uh, it was real tough, and it was tight. It, it took some incredible runs for the list that I'm about to talk about. But you know, I I sat up there in the booth, and even though the racing was so good and so tight for the winners you know they made great runs throughout the event throughout the weekend that wind did have it a bit sloppy for some you know the the door cars they had some challenges in that wind you know that it was pretty much a tailwind for the most point or, uh, you know for for 95 percent of the days but when that tailwind's blowing at different speeds and it's gusting man, you would just see some three and four unders. And when that wind would die, you'd see some three overs. So it was tough. You really had to read the flag. And the people that I'm about to talk about obviously did it more gooder than everybody else. Um, The the event started with a Thursday shootout. Uh, JJ and I arrived about 9.30 Thursday night and the racing had just wrapped up. So uh, again, another good efficient program. I Think it was a 64 car shootout. And that started out with um i think uh an entry to the og million for the winner along with maybe something else might have been a little bit of cash too but it was a good you know it was a good prize it was a real good prize they were racing for and uh it started out with donovan williams getting the win over josh Mackey. (laughs) josh kind of come out of retirement for this thing and racing in one of the glenn smith team cars Josh has not raced competitive bracket racing in, I think they said nine or 10 years, if I remember correctly. So, you know, anytime you've been out of the seat that long, uh, that's a challenge, especially to step into a race like this. So extremely well done by Josh Mackey and the Glenn Smith uh, race car. But Donovan Williams started uh, with a win there to get his entry to the OG Million and it obviously started a, a, a weekend for him that he not only will not soon forget, he'll never forget. Um, pretty incredible start. We, we got to Friday's 50K, again, windy, uh, challenging, cool. And that race um, wrapped up in the, in the 11 o'clock range, probably on Friday night. So it had gotten fairly cool outside especially with the wind because the wind wasn't dying at dark like it typically would around here. But when the dust settled, no pun intended, it was Will Holloman getting the win in the uh, Chris Bear's dragster, the Bear family's dragster. And uh, will made really, really good runs. I mean it was uh, it was pretty awesome from the booth watching uh, watching what he was doing out on the racetrack, just double O and, and mid to high dead on pretty much every lap. And, and he was driving to get it to there. So job extremely well done by Will Holloman. And the runner up was Kevin Brannan. Uh, obviously we're gonna talk about Kevin quite a bit here in the next part of the show when Luke joins us. But Kevin uh, Kevin had a pretty incredible seven day stretch himself. A runner up in a 50 grander is a heck of a week that's a that's a great accomplishment basically for a racing season i mean for most of us if you think about the the financial impact of that and and certainly uh how far that takes you uh, in racing with entry fees and all those things that cost us money but uh but kevin wasn't stopping there and we'll again we'll talk about him quite a bit more coming up will Holloman, that was a huge win for him he had had some challenges um basically in a borrowed car with, uh, had a new engine in it that that they, I don't know, he, he kind of told the story in the winter circle, but they kind of pieced something together and put him a hot rod together to get him there. And then he made it pay off big time with, uh, with the 50K win. So it was pretty incredible there, really happy for wheel as well. And um, that took us into Saturday. Now guys, Saturday's $100,000 to win. These days we see a fair amount of that. And I guess to some that it's just another day, but I don't know in the in the staging lanes myself, racing for a hundred k, I was honestly, I was thinking about it. I mean that's it's a pretty significant day in racing. it we don't have a ton of races that pay a hundred or more. So it was a really big day. And, uh, and, you know, I raced fairly well, but the racing was tight. Again, it was windy. It was cool. And uh, the racing was tough. And I lost just some tough runs. But Donovan Williams did not lose to those tough runs as he stood tall and collected his first major payday in racing. He's won some good races. Don't get me wrong. But a $100,000 win is a super big deal um stuff that that I dream about and I know most of us do so that was uh that was awesome display of driving by Donovan and again we'll talk a little bit more about Donovan after I'm through running the winners down here running the list but he got the win over Chad Spradlin so Chad is a is a racer from my part of the country he lives maybe 45 minutes to an hour north of me I'm in Birmingham and he typically races close to home Montgomery's about as far out as you see him anymore you know he works and he's got a family and they're they're busy doing that type of stuff at times too but uh but Chad raced really well and took his uh took his talent all the way to the final round where he come up a little short of Donovan there the the car, uh, Chad's car went a few off and left Donovan a little too much room. Donovan slid, slid in on that, but Donovan was triple zero dead four in the semis for a four pack to propel him to the final round where Chad had to buy run. Donovan uh, got the win there in the semis to, to race Chad in the final and made it work. Um, again, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about everything that that Donovan accomplished there over the weekend here very shortly but that uh that particular win was uh was fun to watch you know i watched a young man get out there and really drive the race car and and do his thing he's obviously in good genes so uh talented racers run throughout his family so doing that was pretty cool to see and and that's a young man that uh that's going to get plenty more of those before we're done and then Sunday wrapped up with another 50K. Again, it turned out to be kind of a chamber of commerce day there in Montgomery. Temperature got on up into the low 70s, sunny, very little wind. And that led itself to some good racing as well. The racing kind of tightened up when that uh, wind wasn't there and the, the temperatures were in a little better shape. And um, a guy that just continues to go to big money final rounds or big money late, late rounds. He, uh, he did it again, J.R. Barclay. Jr. took his dragster and collected the $50,000 payday with a win over Thomas Holly. Now, I don't know if you guys remember us talking about Thomas a whole lot. Thomas Race is mostly on the Gulf Coast. Uh, he runs down that part of the, the country quite a bit. But Thomas has had some really big wins, uh, has run himself or won both classes the bottom bulb and the top bulb side before I think he's run himself in a big money final round before he has uh, collected some I think $25,000 and $20,000 wins in the past very young man from uh, South Alabama and uh, took his I guess Thomas in early 90s Camaro kind of a wheel stander type car if he chooses to do that he, he keeps it fairly tamed at times but he took that little hot rod 590 car to uh, to the final round but J.R. Barclay did what J.R. Barclay does and he got that huge $50,000 win a man from a great family himself he is a good man uh, kind of quiet confident just gets out there and does his thing with great sportsmanship and a great attitude so never a bad thing to see J.R. Barclay uh, get a big win either because he's uh, he's definitely one of the good guys in the sport but he and Thomas Holly really wrapped up uh, an awesome and fun event uh, with uh, with that fifty thousand dollar final. So that took care of the the winners list and uh, and a little bit about them. But just before we wrap this segment, before I wrap this segment up again, if you've listened to me talk by myself this long, um, it's a little weird, but uh, but I'm sure you all uh, will enjoy. The, the next segment when Luke and I are together talking about the, the fling and always good to get Luke's take on things. But before we move to that, I want to talk about Donovan, you know, the, this young man's uh, now a, now a third generation, big buck winner. You got Troy Williams senior. And of course, Troy Williams junior is Donovan's uncle. Gary Williams is his father. And then here comes Donovan, just another Uh, Williams thoroughbred when it comes to big buck bracket racing and winning talent and and he showed that very well he he's had several good wins in his young career as I mentioned but none have been uh, this impressive not just from a financial standpoint uh you know obviously winning a hundred thousand dollar race is a big deal coming off a shootout where you got entry to the million but uh but Donovan uh, you know, he was very impressive on the racetrack as well. He uh, he's got an aggressive style. He he obviously gets that fairly natural, if there is such a thing. Uh, but but he was holding several numbers. Uh, you know, he could get honest if he wanted to, but you could tell he was dialing it up and driving. You could hear him driving it, see him driving it, and um, it was pretty darn impressive to watch what he was able to accomplish and. You know, the way he was able to do it in a very talented field, uh, just where his talent rose to the top above all others. And, you know, uh, again, that's something that I know we're going to see plenty more of out of him. And at some point, it will probably become the expectation, and, and people will, will hold him to a high standard to do those types of things just because he's a Williams and he comes from a. a very talented um, family of racers and, and winners, but what he was able to accomplish and the way he did it was very, very impressive. I don't care who it is, what name they have at that age to do what what he has not only done prior, but to go do at this event, um, certainly worthy of, of discussion and certainly uh, somebody that, uh, that I, I guess, is going to continue to impress us, and I hope that it's it's still at a level where people don't, I don't know, where they don't, I guess, hold him accountable for, for winning just because he's a Williams. Because you can teach what he does, and it has been taught to him his entire life, but you still have to go out and execute it. And for him to do what I saw him do on that racetrack was uh, was something that just it, it takes so much talent to do and so much ability and so much, I guess, um, control of your emotions and your nerves. You just typically don't get that at that age. And, and Donovan has self-admittedly said, you know, look, I, I've struggled with uh, with getting over the hump at times, wasn't sure, basically, that I could do it, but I I, I had to convince myself that I could, and once I convinced myself that I could, you know, the winning has just started happening, and, you know, really, he just, he talked about the mental aspect of it, and how just getting control of yourself, and and convincing yourself that you're good enough, which we all struggle with, right? I mean, we, I think any of us would admit that a lot of our failures on the racetrack are due to you know, us thinking about everything that we could do wrong as opposed to just going out and doing what we do right. So Donovan struggled with that again. Uh, he admitted that, but he's got himself mentally in a place where um, he's he's been able to overcome those thoughts and those feelings. And it paid off and it'll continue to pay off. The winter circle, insane. So many people wanted to be there. It was late. It was cold. A time when a lot of the racers will be piled up in the motorhome or wherever, going to the hotel. They all stayed. Uh, He had a huge winter circle celebration where there, there was just so much love for him. Uh, people hugging him, giving him five, celebrating, wanting to be in the picture, just really lifting him up, and, and it'll, it's a moment again that that he will he will never ever forget. I certainly won't. I enjoyed watching it uh, close at a close distance there. And what I loved, I guess, the most about Donovan was how transparent he was in the Winter Circle in the interview. Uh, they, he, he admitted there was a round or two where he probably should have come up short, normally would have, but got by, you know, he felt that the those wins went his way as opposed to him just flat earning them. You know, obviously his what he was doing on the racetrack was helping some people turn what would look like a win into a loss, but uh, but he was very humble in victory uh, again. Uh, it, was, it was fun to see a, a young racer like that, that, you know, has all the resources to be great, but you still got to go out and be great. And he was humble in victory and, and talked about, again, the challenges that he's had uh, getting over the mental hump, which, again, we all struggle with. It's not a Donovan thing. That's a every racer thing. But he displayed a confidence that's well beyond his years. I mean, it, it was it was like. He flipped a switch, and when he knew he could do it, when he knew he could go out and compete with anybody anywhere, he uh, he was able to to get to that point and do it. So uh, it was really fun winter circle interview, and and cool to get to to watch Donovan reach a new a new level of accomplishment, and certainly um, have a life changing day for him, uh, his first huge huge win like that. I mean, this guy's seen more high-level racing than most, right? I mean, uh, Gary Williams is his father. Troy Williams is his uncle. He's surrounded by uh, legends in the sport. The circle that he runs in is one of the most talented circles that that you could ever find. He races in a part of Florida that has legendary talent at the local level uh, and then certainly travels with some of the best that will ever do it so the guy has seen high level racing uh, up close and i even think that adds pressure so there's probably some of that mental challenge that was there was that you know that added to pressure man i'm i'm surrounded by people that that win and have won for decades i mean you you're talking about the williams brothers both of those guys have won for decades this is not just some fly by night thing where they've won for eight or 10 years. I mean, these guys have won for 25 years and won big. So I think there was some added pressure on Donovan and to see him be able to get past that as well was uh, was pretty neat. I, I feel like I got to watch a, a significant moment in his life, in his racing life, where he is going to, uh, it's going to help uh, move him, you know, to the next level on a, on a more consistent basis and at a very i can't i can't stress enough it's at a very young age so if uh if you see continue to see and hear that donovan donovan williams has collected big checks and big paydays at the big races don't be surprised at all if you don't know who this kid is uh, you probably should now but you're going to know very very soon and you'll continue to see his name and. You know, again, it put his name in the history books, and it solidified his spot on the the Williams family's accomplishment list or accomplishment tree or wherever unbelievably talented racing families uh, hang or or stack their accomplishments. You know, Donovan's is right in there, hundred thousand dollar win at this age. So, uh, just a little insight into him, who he is, and and what he uh, what he was able to accomplish there. Uh, Saturday night at the Capital City Classic, Capital City Motorsports Park and again uh, shout out to Ben Willis, the uh, the great talented staff there, my main man JJ, uh, Melissa Willis, the Tapley family, everybody that's involved in making it a great experience to race at Capital City Motorsports Park, job well done. And I certainly can't wait for the next one. Looking forward to uh, to getting back down there sometime soon and racing with you guys. And congratulations to that uh, strong list of winners. I uh, watched those racers perform round after round after round. Got a pretty good look at that as well. Uh, it, was, uh, it was really fun to, to watch all of you do your thing and uh, certainly get the uh, inaugural Capital City Classic. In the uh, in the books, the right way with uh, with some great performances. So that uh, that was the take on Montgomery and the inaugural Capital City Classic. Um, we uh, we've got the Sprinkling Million. That's going to be quite a segment in itself. We're going to tie these two segments together again. I'm about to be joined by Luke here in a little bit, and we'll we'll record that segment and talk about everything that happened out there. And that was an incredible event. So looking forward to that and getting his take on it from a bird's eye view and uh, probably sprinkle a couple of things in there, here and there, and um, talk about that as well. Uh, It is, uh, as we record, or certainly as I'm recording alone at the moment, it is Big Nasty's birthday. Uh, Our dear, dear friend Kyle Seipel. Uh, who uh, who left us way too soon, way too early. Uh, it's his birthday today. Kyle would have been 51 today. So uh, say a little happy birthday to, to our man, Kyle Seipel, big nasty in heaven. We know that he is, uh, he's lighting them up up there in heaven and, uh, and certainly impacting those folks on the other side, the way he impacted us on this side. And We miss him. We love him and certainly hope that he's having a heavenly birthday today that wraps it up for this segment guys i'll be back with luke here in just a little bit and we'll be talking about the spring fling million and whatever else pops up we appreciate you tuning in to this hope you enjoyed our, our breakdown or my breakdown of the Capital city classic there in montgomery at capitol city motorsports park and uh, we uh we'll be back with you here in just a little bit With uh, the Luke and Jed show as it uh, normally is. So thanks for tuning in. Be back shortly. All right, guys. As promised, uh, we you know we just wrapped up the Capital City Inaugural Capital City Classic, and I told you we were going to have Luke. We've we've had a little bit of scheduling conflict, but Luke is available and here, and our schedules have all synced up. Now we're going to talk about where Luke was. No offense to the Capital City Classic, but I mean, pretty pretty cool to have spent the week, your last week in Vegas at the Spring Fling Million. So, Luke, uh, I know there's plenty to talk about uh, out there as far as the racing and the winners and all those things go. But I guess first and foremost, welcome, and uh, and give us a little breakdown of of your week on the racetrack. Say,
0: I'm in the house. And it's good to be in the house, big did.
1: Man, I'm sure it is. 10 weeks away <laughs> in the motorhome, staying in the RV parks and at the mm-hmm. racetrack. And now you're back in southern Illinois, beautiful God's country. But man, it looked like an awesome trip, Luke.
0: It was. I mean, this morning I did stand in the shower for like 30 minutes. I couldn't get enough. It was great. <laughs> it was marvelous. Um, but no, the whole trip was just incredible. I wouldn't trade it for anything. If you gave me the opportunity to do again, do it again today, we'd leave again. It was awesome. It was, we didn't, not only did we not kill each other, like we never even got close. I think we did better as a family than we do at home. Um, and, um, awesome. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was a really good experience, I think, to, to get a little bit closer, not only with my boys, my wife, like it was it was a ton of fun. Like I said, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, I'm very much a routine based guy. So I'm happy to be home and, and beginning to get back into some type of routine. Life seems a little bit less hectic, but, uh, but no, it was awesome. I'd do it again. Well,
1: that's really good to hear. I mean, that's, uh, you know, sometimes by the end of those things, you you're saying, I'll never do this again, or I wouldn't wish this on anybody, but to hear that it went that well and you guys enjoyed it that much. and would like to do it again. I'm sure that will lead you to do something certainly similar again at some point in the future. So
0: we were forward. on the way
1: home looking at schedules being like, where could we drive 2,500 miles?
0: Literally. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, good it's stuff. Good but yeah, no, the, the, the final, the penultimate, uh, excursion was the, the biggest race on our trip. And I think it's fair to say the, the biggest race of the 2022 season to this point, the spring fling million Vegas. I think it's only makes sense to lead off with the big show. And I think Ted, without question, the biggest story was our man, KB.
1: Yeah. KB was uh, obviously the story out there, um, jumping in a, a ride that as a dragster. So I'm not, I don't want to diminish it, but I mean, that's like, I think they're all kind of like riding a horse, you know, the horse, just kind of feels the same, even though it might look a little different. It might be a little different size, but I say that uh, tongue in cheek, because I know it's a, it takes tremendous talent and ability to jump in anything that you're not familiar with and go win a race like that. And that's exactly what KB did. You know, we just talked about the Montgomery race, Luke, where he run it up a 50 K that started a seven day stretch for him. That will be uh, arguably the best seven day stretch of his life, certainly his racing life. So you had a, a real good view of it. Um, you know, I know the vibe was incredible out there, but but tell us about KB and, and what you saw him accomplish.
0: Well, you've got a point in that a dragster is a dragster. So I guess it is slightly less impressive to hop into a dragster for the first time and go win an event than it would be, you know, some wheel standing back half door car that, that, you know, I mean that just has its own unique tendencies, but it's one thing, man, to just hop in a dragster and go navigate it down a race course or go a few rounds or maybe even win at, at some level. It's another to hop in a completely foreign car and go out there and beat the best racers that the country has to offer on the biggest stage and do so in what arguably, and I don't want to be a prisoner of the moment, is at least late in the race, the most impressive fashion that you could imagine. Uh, I'll I'll circle back on that. KB with his, with his win, obviously it was what, two years ago, he won the OG million in Montgomery and in one of the most um, debated odd bizarre you know sequences and i think it meant a lot to kevin to to win this race he said as much in the Winter circle he's like there was a lot of doubt around that race like i wanted to go win another one and i don't think that kevin brandon had a thing to prove but i know in his mind that this this solidifies things like there and he left zero doubt here zero doubt I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll roll through this in, in just a minute but just as we broaden out a little bit with his win at the spring from million kb becomes one of i believe this is right I, I didn't do a ton of crack research here but i believe he is now one of five drivers to win multiple millions quick trivia time for you big jed can you name the other four
1: Oh, okay, this shouldn't be too difficult. It was obviously uh um Gary Williams.
0: Keto won the won the OG twice.
1: It's Dave Triplett.
0: Tripp has won the OD OG twice. It's Kenny Underwood again won the OG twice. And it's Jeff Verdi. Very good. All right. All right. that, I that was wasn't
1: a, I, you know, trivia challenges me, Luke. But that wasn't too hard.
0: No, I lined that one up. It was right down the middle <laughs> you walked it out of the park. So that's obviously very elite company and i say that kb left little to chance and i know that you were watching on live feed probably the majority of our listeners are watching on the live feed i was watching this go down in person and yes he's in a car that he's never set in prior to that day prior to that day not the weekend that day kb started the weekend driving big chief Jerry Lones, Firebird, and had all kinds of issues. He told me at one point, he was like, man, I don't know what's wrong, but this thing ain't run within like 300 to what I thought yet. And decided to hop in this Race Tech dragster, uh, belongs to the Hogg family, on Friday. Like his first run in it was the new entry time trial for the million, or maybe the run for the money for the million. I don't even know how that worked. Um, double entered, so he got to make a few laps. And late in the race, A... The runs that he laid down were amazing. I mean, from the quarterfinals on, Kevin's reaction times were three, three, five. And he told me he didn't touch the box. Like, you got to be good to win. Right. And when you add to that, like, I don't, it was obviously what you would expect at what 13 cars left in the million. It's a star studded field. And at that point, I don't think you can necessarily say, like, oh man, like the two best drivers are going at it here or the winner of this round should win the race. Like there's too much talent in the field to say that. But I do think it's fair to say that at each step of the way, at each round of competition from 13 cars remaining on, I think it's fair to say that Kevin had to square off against the most accomplished competitor remaining in the field each round. At 13 cars, that's Scotty Richardson. At seven cars, it's Dan Northrup. At four cars, it's Andy Schmall. And then the final it's Spencer Massey. And each time he's double O, each time he's either taken double O and or running low dead on, or in the final, I think he was five take two to be two I wonder. And I mean, just there, it was flawless execution on both ends of the racetrack on the biggest stage in a foreign car against the very
1: best of the best
0: and i just i don't think it gets better than that
1: No, it's a it's certainly a very incredible story and again i i said some words that could be taken the wrong way about the dragster and them all being the same but you have to feel like kevin look for a dragster to race in the million because it is something that he knew he could adapt to much easier than i imagine there's plenty of door cars sitting in the million versus the amount of dragsters that that were running all races so his his opportunity was probably bigger in a door car but he went and found a dragster that he could get in and compete for obvious reasons so you know i, I that that's understandable but i I really don't mean to make light of it because it's truly remarkable what he was able to do and in the fashion that he was able to do it obviously he had a really good piece it looked like the car was doing exactly what he thought it was doing because he was doing his driving and that thing was laying down dead on dead on dead on and just the two thou under in the final just showed you know that it might have picked up four or five thou but it was still really good and he was making it really tight at the finish line uh, as he had been for the previous several rounds. So um, incredible accomplishment now winning the OG and the Spring Fling Million again makes him the fifth driver to win multiples um, coming off of a week uh, seven days prior where he collected a a runner up in a fifty thousand dollar to win race all the way across the country. He went to work on Monday, left Sunday afternoon in Montgomery, kind of late at that, sun mm-hmm. going down kind of kind of late. Worked Monday, uh, caught a plane Tuesday, goes to Vegas and you know, battles a couple of challenges here and there with the car he's racing, jumps in a dragster, wins the spring clean million. And I mean, it's a the whole story, Luke, is incredible and you know it couldn't have happened to a better guy. Uh, he he did feel like and has felt like for a while that he had kind of uh, an asterisk on his OG million win because of how crazy that sequence was, and the fact that he red lighted and lost the race. And Gary Williams stopped and said, "You know what? I want this thing to to go down clean. So let's." let's do it, let's have a do-over, and gave him another opportunity, and, and again, to the, to the uneducated listener on that, what happened at the OG million, that sounds like, what? You'd (laughs) had to, you'd had to go back and play it back to understand it.
0: (laughs) Listener that knows what happens at the OG million, we go, wait, what?
1: (laughs) Yeah, good point, but, uh, so play that sequence back, and you'll understand that a little better, but again he's had an asterisk on that that win and you did talk about it he he mentioned that in his interview his uh his winner's interview uh that basically that you know validated his place solidified his place in uh, all million dollar history by being a multiple million dollar winner now on each coast so really yeah. happy for kb he's a genuine god-loving a family-loving, hard-working, dedicated man that never misses an opportunity to shake your hand and and just have a good word with you when he sees you in the lanes and comes to the tower sometimes and hangs out with us. So I just couldn't be happier for KB and I sent him a text saying so. They whisked him off, Luke. You've you've done it. You've been there to the Cosmopolitan to your suite. I gotta know. I, I should have sent him a text and asked him. But did did KB take anybody with him? I mean, did he did he go along? What was going on there? My impression is KB was solo in the suite. <laughs> good stuff. The <laughs> Victor goes to spole. Just went out there by himself and hung out in the Cosmo. That was that was good stuff. It was awesome to watch.
0: To, to second your point. I, KB didn't need this to, to validate himself or his career in, in any way, regardless of how he feels about, you know, that, that whole sequence in OG Million. But I think you do have a point, Jed, in terms of public perception, because now when you say the words Kevin Brandon Million Dollar Race, I don't, where two weeks ago, the first thing that came to mind may have been, man, that was one bizarre million, right? Now, I don't think anybody talks about that. I think it's just Kevin and the guy that's won two of them. And yeah. that's what he is. You know, uh, so uh, like I said, not that he needed that in any way to, to validate anything that he's done. I, I think anyone would tell you he's one of, if not the best doing what we do, right? Um, sure. so he, he didn't need this validation, but I know in his mind that goes a long way. And I do think like in terms of public perception, that's a whole different, level that you reach in terms of like there's five people that won two of these things right (laughs) and and to do it on opposite coasts, and to really just continue the run that he's been on not only this season but you know realistically like he had said when we had him on after winning the OG that that season that that was what 2020 season had not been a banner year up to that point I think it's very just fair to say that the year and a half since has been 100% vintage KB. He has won a lot and done it at a high level in a variety of race cars. Um, One thing that I'll just circle back and and it lends to his prowess at, at, at really both ends of the racetrack and the million itself, like that car that he was driving looked like it was phenomenal from the outside. I mean, the last three of the last four rounds, he was paired against slow door cars. Again, I'm projecting just looking at... What I saw from the from the stands, it looked like he was on like mid to high four fifty nine, was dialed four sixty against those slow cars, presumably because he didn't want to give away that five thousand and was just killing a little bit and ringing it up dead on, right? that the million dollar race day itself, Friday was probably the the calmest day of the event. But even with that said, I think most that were there would would in competition would agree with this. I've been to Vegas a lot, Jed, and I've been to what four or five of the millions there. This was without question the most difficult weekend that I have seen there in terms of dialing a race car. And and we all know like Vegas can get tricky. There's it's the desert, there's significant weather swings, there can be wind, you know. I mean, there's there's just a lot of variables in play. But it is rare. That you go to in this day and age, that you go to an eighth mile bracket race where the differentiating factor is the finish line. Because typically, wherever we go, like we can all go dead on as many times as we want to go dead on. That wasn't necessarily the case last week. We had, especially the first day and the last day, just brutal, like 40 plus mile an hour winds whipping around in every direction that not only are in, impacting. The the runs down the track due to win, you got dust and sand and crap blowing all around everywhere. And despite the the track crews' efforts, despite sending cars down the racetrack, like down track can't be great. There's just too much junk flying around, right? And you couple that with the, the crazy weather swings of the desert, like it was a very trying weekend to get dialed. And I don't think that it is any coincidence that even in the million, like the, the calmest, if you will, day of the, the four or five day event, that when we got down to 13 cars, not only was it a who's who of the sport, it was by and large, like the guys that you would recognize as being the greatest finish line drivers in the game. We had KB, we had Johnny Izzo, we had Jeff Sarah, we had Gary Williams. Scotty Richardson, Andy Schmall, like guys that are are obviously very good at, at every aspect of this game, but hang their hat on finish line execution. And that's zero coincidence. Like it was what I think is rare in this day and age for an eighth mile bracket race. It was very much a finish line driver's weekend. And I think KB exemplifies that.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Anytime that, that those are the requirements to get to the winner's circle you know guys like kb and and the the strong list that you mentioned uh if they don't have an advantage a clear advantage they are certainly um as close to it as you can get though those those are all very talented finish line drivers and people that do it you know when they don't have to even they just do it it by nature so um certainly I, i guess that led to to some extra opportunity for that Group to to make their way to the late rounds, but Luke, I, I watched it quite a bit online, probably as much as I've just sat and tuned into a race because it was Easter weekend. I didn't race. I uh, I I've had some downtime in the evenings where the racing was starting to get good out there, and it was nightfall here, so I was able to tune in quite a bit, and it did look challenging. You know, it looked like some some cars struggled a little end to end and it certainly looked like some struggled uh with the wind not just on me and friday of course but just throughout the the weekend or week and i just talked about it when i recorded the the segment about montgomery that the wind was blowing 15 16 on the bad days and that was challenging you know to to me in a door car and calling the laps that i called sometimes you'd get those gusts and cars would break out 2 or 3 and sometimes the flag would sit still and they'd go 2 or 3 above and i can only imagine the winds you guys were dealing with and what kind of impact that had doesn't matter which way it's blowing it has an impact whether it's blowing up the tailpipe or the the grill so <laughs> I, I can imagine how challenging that was and some of these guys made it pretty seamless or looks pretty seamless yeah it's
0: definitely a uh, aggressive finish line driver definitely a a holder's race and obviously some of the names that i mentioned are uh, not a bit afraid to wheel it dial it up and improvise on the spot um yeah i think uh, say it's it's not it's not every day that we see that in an mile bracket race but i think that would definitely play a significant factor here before we move on Jed, to talk about um some of the other days events and and some broad takeaways from million specifically from million dollar friday Uh, obviously we're singing KB's praises and and rightfully so we want to shed a little bit of light runner up Spencer Massey. Yeah. You know, that Spencer Massey, top fuel Spencer Massey. Spencer, I thought what was most impressive about this is like that Nova that he drove to the million dollar race final is, I mean, it looks like a street car. It's a nine inch tire, 650 Nova that obviously was really good and Spencer made really nice runs. But that's not the car you would typically expect to see in a million-dollar race final. And just to to hammer that home just a little bit more, Spencer, it was several years ago, we used to do a a race. I put on a race here at I-57 called the Exclusive 150. And Spencer entered that one year, and I just assumed he was going to show up in a dragster. He drove from Texas and unloads this thing. And I'm like, okay. And then it literally was subject to move a 10th at any given time, like it looked like it was awful, the worst car at the racetrack. To the point I thought, why did you drive 12 hours to bring that thing here? Four years later, that thing was in the final of the spring fling million. (laughs) And I think, A, that's a testament to, to Spencer and the work that he's put in on that car, but it's one of those things that we've said time and time again, it is really refreshing to see in this day and age of you know, $100,000 bracket cars being commonplace for a quote unquote low budget, low, slower ET car like that to go out and prove that it be, can be competitive in what, like we just talked about, jet in theory, should have been one of the most difficult times to run a car like that. And I think it's good for bracket racing as a whole to realize like, hey, we don't need 450 dragsters to win. We don't need $100,000 race cars to win. Spencer Massey on, on the prowess of good hard work, making a combination good. And obviously his driving ability is able to take that car that many of us would deem as, if not non-competitive, certainly not the best tool for the job and come within a thousandth of a second of winning the
1: million. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that Luke. Cause you know, it certainly was noteworthy what he was doing on the racetrack. And not only did he run her up, I mean, he made a winning lap in the final. I think he was 10 and 5,000 under or something along those lines, maybe 7,000 under, you know, and as challenging as those conditions were, as you mentioned, he's in, you know, terrible position there with a 650 door car and wind blowing all around and small tires and track getting dust and sand and all those things. So Spencer certainly had some uh, some hurdles to overcome that everybody didn't, and he did extremely well and took himself to that runner-up spot. And, and again, the laps he was making were, you know, equally as good as what KB was laying down within a few thou anyway, uh, but they were very, very, very impressive. And, uh, and, you know, anybody that didn't get to watch that that's just hearing about a low buck 650 door car going to the final there was not a whole lot of luck involved i mean he was driving the wheels off of that thing
0: no and it's rare in, in any race but specifically on the big stages it's rare to look back and say it was the two right guys in the final like those two guys made the best runs throughout the day this race those were the two right guys in the final like they absolutely made the most unbeatable rounds, at least throughout the late rounds of competition. Like they both absolutely 100% deserve to be there.
1: Um, Excellent point. I
0: thought, I, I guess we'll just shed light on, on all of the late finishers. The semifinalists, as well, Andy Schmall, Chris Galetti. A, KB won the race. He didn't have more fun than Chris Coletti. I mean, that dude is there's seven cars left in the million doing dry hops in a 440 dragster. And not like, look, I mean, like going well past the starting line, having to kick into reverse again. And I can just picture, Chris, I'm 400 feet down the track, but I can picture him just laughing in the helmet and having the time of his life. Fun yep. to watch, right? And Andy Schmall, up until Wednesday of this event, when, when Lucas Walker won, and we'll dedicate some time to that, um, Andy was the only racer in previous years to come through the pro bracket at a spring event, at a fling event. And go on to win the race. Two years ago, Andy Schmall came through the pro bracket and advanced to the semifinals in the million. He duplicated that feat this year. and it's super impressive. Now, Andy, once he got through the pro bracket, actually put the delay box back in. he was running a second entry in the delay box, so he had those numbers and felt a little bit more confident off the top than he did off the bottom. That is, that is a, something that is allowed. Uh, at the fling, once you advance through the pro bracket, when there's no more no-box cars to beat, you can put the box back in. That's what Andy did. Um, but the caliber of runs that he was making really it was everybody that was in late. Andy made some nasty runs and was 100% deserving to be in the semis, too. And I think to do that, to take the path that he took to get there for the second time in three seasons is is noteworthy as well.
1: Yeah, another very good point. Uh, you know, is it's always impressive to watch Andy Schmall do what Andy Schmall does. But when those stakes are getting that high, Luke, and you've come through the pro side and you know, now you're the the bottom bulber, even getting to put the box back in, which I didn't even know that. I'm glad you shared that with us because I just assumed he was no box racing and and letting go on the bottoms, obviously was letting go on the top, but making really solid runs, you know, he was in that. Mid teen, and dead on lap over and over and over, and and that's while that doesn't sound incredible based on what we hear about KB, what he was doing, and and certainly Spencer, those are really solid laps when things are tricky and hard to beat, and uh, and he showed that they were hard to beat, and then come up a little short in the semis, but you you just can't say enough about him. He he just continues to do it on the big stage, especially at the spring fling. Vegas event and uh, and he is uh, he's taking care of a lot of entry fees and and if there's a buyback or two and some diesel fuel along the way Luke with big performances out there in Vegas and this was another great great event for him so that was really cool to see Uh, I wish that he had continued to hit the bottom but reality is the laps he was making he makes that on the bottom quite often so he was just making the the same laps that he typically makes uh just doing it a little different way but uh had had he been doing that hitting the bottom bub i wouldn't have been shocked either because he he makes incredible runs and uh and that guy has shown out on the big stage i I think um if i remember right randy biddle jr went to the semis Mm -hmm. one year out there on the bottom but um You know, in a field with some serious East Coast bottom bulb talent, the Nick Hastings of the world, and then of course you got West Coast, you got Justin Lamb, you got some talented guys. Of course, we're going to talk about what Lucas Walker did, Uh, and and for Andy to to arguably be the most successful bottom bulb performer out there throughout the the spring fling years in Vegas, I think that says all it needs to say about his talent
0: it's funny that I'd asked him about this, you know, did you, did you put the box back in? And the explanation that he gave was, well, you know, I'd been making really good runs off the bottom and I felt pretty confident about it, but you know, I can let go 30 off the bottom real easy. And then he caught himself and he said, I can let go 30 off the top pretty easy, but usually I'll know it and I can bump down. So bottom, I don't have that option.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Good recognition.
0: I thought that that was a pretty good explanation. Um, yeah. All right. So I want to go a couple of different directions. I, I want to talk a little bit, Big Jet, about the, the other days, the, the non-million days at the fling. And then we've also got some kind of broad, you know, big picture takeaways. So I guess first we'll go through it day by day. And you had alluded to it earlier, the The most unpredictable, let's just go out and say that the most bizarre day of this year's spring fling million was uh, well, I guess I was going to say opening day, but that would be day two, opening day's time trial day. Wednesday's main event had some wild stuff happen, and it culminated in Lucas Walker winning the event from the pro side. Unlike Andy Schmall, Lucas was off the bottom all the way through. Um, but there was some extenuating circumstances that went into this win. Let me just frame it like this for the listener, and I'll, and I'll pitch this to you, Jen I don't think there are many times in Lucas Walker's career, specifically within the last you know five years, where you could ever look at his racing and go, Lucas is the underdog, right? That doesn't happen. Lucas is arguably one of the top five, maybe one of the top two bottom ball racers in the world. Not the underdog very often. Let's frame this situation. Lucas Walker, you are rolling through the pro side of this $30,000 to win event Wednesday at the Spring Fling Million, when all of a sudden the truck that you're driving, you're doubled with Kevin Pollard, you're running on the pro side, Kevin is foot breaking it in the super pro field. They're both in, I believe, going into round five or six when there's a, a devastating accident in the pits that not only destroys the truck that you have been driving, but also significantly injures your friend that you are driving it for to the point that he is carted off to the hospital. Within 20 minutes of that incident, you, Lucas Walker, arrive in the staging lanes for the semi final round of the pro class in a car that you have never driven down the racetrack to stage now for, I believe it's round six. Okay. Odds are not in your favor, period, for a variety of reasons at this point. But let's go ahead and stack them up more. Because who are you paired with in said round? 20 minutes after your friend's been carted off to the hospital in a car that you have never driven, but the best damn bottom ball racer in the history of the world. You're paired with Nick Hastings. Great draw. So odds are not good that you're going to get out of this round, much less that you were going to not only defeat Nick Hastings without a time trial in a car that you've never driven, but then come back and defeat Chad Sandlin to win the pro class. And then, oh, by the way, over the course of the next 24 hours, after the race gets postponed and spread out, you're also going to roll through three cars that are delay box equipped to win the 30 grand. Without question, this was one of those rare instances where Lucas Walker was a significant underdog And yet, despite all of those odds, that's exactly what Lucas Walker did. 24 hours after all of that, Lucas Walker stood in the winner's circle with a check for $30,000. Big Jed, how did that happen?
1: (laughs) You know, Luke, not only is that, you know, one of the most unbelievable performances any of us have ever witnessed, you know, the, and I know you, you alluded to this a little bit, but the swapping feet aspect of this, you don't, you don't get in just anything. You can take a car that's just like what you drive and get in it to hit the bottom. And there's just a little bit of difference that you're going to experience. And it's going to, it's going to create a situation where you need a couple of runs. Anyway, even if you're great, you need a couple of runs. He had none of that. He's got to get in a car that's um, I think it was around three tenths slower than what he was driving. That he hasn't been in, hasn't set in, and he's got to go out there and race Nick Hastings. Now I don't, I didn't stay up. That one ran late. That Wednesday night thing ran late. Obviously, the incident in the pits caused a lot of that. Before I go any further, thoughts and prayers out to to my buddy KP. You talking about a really good guy, arguably um one of the the best bottom bulbers that'll ever do it and uh and a guy that's just really soft-spoken and for that to happen to him was quite a shame Uh, i don't know the full details i know a little bit about what i've been told but just sound like a freak thing that that ended badly for uh for kevin pollard and um You know, he ended up with a broken leg. I think some beats and bangs and some maybe up around his head that he had to get uh, stitched up a little bit. So whatever the case may be, he's got a little bit of a a battle ahead of him. And we're certainly uh, hoping that he gets well very soon, gets back to the racetrack where he likes to be and does well. But Lucas has to get in Raider Campbell's um, first gen Camaro. Uh, that goes high five fifties. He's been going about five thirty, and make this whole thing work that you just laid out. Uh, you want the odds on that? <laughs> it's a, it's one in and ten thousand. I mean, it I mean it really? Is.
0: Odds he even gets out of the round with Hastings? I
1: one mean, in like, ten thousand. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't want to race Lucas anytime, ever. He's beat me like I owe him money, and we're pretty good friends. But if I'm ever going to get him, that's the, that's the scenario I want him in. A car you've never set in, you're in Las Vegas, Nevada, and you're racing for 30 grand, and it's late in the rounds, and you just watched your buddy get hauled off in the ambulance. And now we've told you, hey, go get in this and go up there and race. Yeah, I'll take, I suck, but I'll take my odds against Lucas Walker. And he beat the best bottom bulber we've ever seen that probably ever will. And then marched his way through over a, I don't know, like you said, 24-hour stretch through the another unbelievably talented guy in Chad Sandlin. And then the, the top bulb side where he continued to foot break, gets to buy to the final in the semis, and then goes out and wins the darn thing, wins a $30,000 payday later on the next day. I uh, just it's it's unbelievable really that that he was able to put himself in position to win it and then to go out and actually accomplish that and get it done just so much about Lucas and his ability to get control of his emotions because Luke, how much emotion could you possibly have with with all that happening what you just witnessed and and knowing that you're jumping in something different and you you know then it becomes a you know, win one for the Gipper, uh, mentality, you know, you, you want to go out there now and win it for your buddy and you don't, you don't even care about the money and then, and, and what you're about to potentially accomplish. You just want to do your buddy a solid and give him something to celebrate. Cause he's, he's just, you know, had his, uh, racing season and operation turned upside down in the pits. So, all of that weighing on his heart and on his mind and he goes out and and gets it done against Nick and Chad and then finishes the deal. Um, Something that should be celebrated for a long, long time because that is truly remarkable. And I couldn't, I couldn't give you uh, more than three people that I think could even accomplish something like that uh, on the list. So Uh, Lucas did something truly special and and I I texted him prior to to going out and and racing on uh, Thursday and you know I told him look just go out and and put up the best story of redemption that's ever been seen and I really think he did that I think this was the the best story of redemption that we've ever seen at the racetrack and and uh, you know I couldn't be prouder for Lucas and Raider and certainly hope that helped uh KP feel a little bit better too because that was really cool to watch
0: well said and speaking of redemption obviously on a, on a little bit different level how about Chris Whitfield I mean that guy has more or less been the the face of the flings for the last year he was runner up at the Spring Fling Million in 2021. He was runner-up a day in Bristol. I think he was runner-up another day in Vegas, right? Three Spring Fling finals in the last year, but but no wins. He turned that around Thursday and left little to chance, kind of similar to uh, to Kevin Brandon a day later. Um, Not only did Chris Whitfield advance to yet another Spring Fling final, this time he got the win light over Gary Williams, obviously one of, if not the best in the game. And I think Chris laid down like, 13 total in the final again, left little to chance. You could tell the, the sense of, I don't know if it was pride or relief in his voice after it was over, just to, to get to that stage and, and finally get to hoist the trophy. It's one of those things that I think was way more important to him to get over that hump to win than it was to the rest of us watching because the rest of us realize how insanely difficult it is to make multiple spring playing finals. But I know for Chris uh, it, it, it wouldn't have meant near as much if that final wind light didn't come on. So he got that on Thursday, collecting a, another $30,000 trial.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, we've talked about Chris quite a bit here on the show, Luke, I know you, you have a very high level of respect for Chris, uh, you you've seen him race for quite some time. I have a very high level of respect for Chris. There is, uh, on the East coast, the, the respect for the West coast talent, is uh, is not where it needs to be and you say it, slim yeah that's that's nobody's fault but the west coast okay they, they don't uh they they just haven't gotten over the hump at, at their at their event when the east coasters invade and you know they they certainly don't travel this way very often uh in large numbers so that limits their opportunities too so I would say they've caused quite a bit of that lack of respect. It's not a disrespect. It's just a lack of respect, but this is a guy that doesn't matter where his address is. This dude can race with anybody. He has shown it time and time again, and he will continue to do that. He's very calm, cool, and collected. He's got really good talent and he knows what to do on the racetrack to, to create wind lights. Um, he, he's uh, he's capable of driving any type of race you want him to drive, or ne- that he needs to drive to win. So, Chris Whitfield is definitely one of the guys that will uh, will probably uh, take a little offense to. Well, I saw it online. I don't know if you got to see some of that. There was some chatter online about East Coast versus West Coast, and you know, people kind of betting against the West Coast. I would think a guy like Whitfield takes that personal and uh, and that I don't know if you can if you can help yourself turn on wind lights by getting a little pissed off at some of that stuff but I imagine he he uses that fuel for his fire just a little bit and um, certainly somebody that that I think is going to at some point Luke he's going to put the west coast on the winner's list at the at the west coast million at some point he's He's very good at Vegas, as you've mentioned with the final round appearances. Um, He is, uh, he's certainly used to uh, challenging weather conditions. Um, (laughs) He races at the the highest elevation that you can race at. So he's probably. We saw
0: Vegas was child's play for that Vanderveer guy. (laughs) Yeah.
1: He's (laughs) seen some weather swings that we couldn't imagine. So this is a guy that gets it in totality. And, uh, and he's going to get his name on that spring fling million dollar trophy one day and, and silence some people. And, um, and I look forward to seeing it. He's he and his family are some really good folks. I could
0: see some of that banter being bullet bulletin board material, whether it's for, for Chris Whitfield or any other, you know, quote unquote, West coast racers. I will say this season, although they're the, the streak continued, right. There's, there's never been a spring fling million winner to hail from West of Texas. Right. And, and that continues with, with Kevin Brandon's victory. I think it was a good week for the West coast. You had, uh, and I say West coast, like uh, again, West of Texas, Whitfield gets the 30 grander. Jim Glenn won the opening day dragster race and just continued a monster start to the season for that man. Um, back to back supercomp final rounds, um, now leading the supercomp points chase. And backs that up with a no split, by the way, Uh, probably, I don't know, 40, dollars $50,000 dragster race win on, uh, on opening day Tuesday. So just between those two, I think the West Coast was well represented in the winter circle. Uh, several others going deep. Um The, the last day of the spring flea million was, again, probably the the trickiest constant 40-ish or gusts up to forty. I would not say constant forty mile an hour. Constant like twenty-five to thirty mile an hour. Direct tail slash cross tail wind. Tricky day at the racetrack. Peeps Pennington overcomes as I guess we would kind of come to expect from Peeps. But the manner in which Peeps wins the closing thirty grander is like one of those things that will go down in for folklore for a long time. Peeps made a perfect run in the final. In case you hadn't heard. The only reason that Peeps made a perfect run in the final is because David Meyer made a really good run beside him. Peeps's car in the semifinal round, like he had a hard time getting down the racetrack and it was, I think two hundreds plus slow to three thirty and skating all over the place. And he even said so much in his winter circle interview. He's like, well, I didn't have any choice. Like I had to dial up to what I knew I could run. And then in the final, like it all came back. And I don't know exactly how much Peeps would have gone under had he decided to hold it to the floor or had David Meyer red-lighted. But I think it's very safe to say it's more than four hundredths. And like, Peeps is obviously very capable of executing any strategy down the racetrack, but his normal MO is not that of Jeff Serra. Like, Peeps is not typically staging up holding six, eight hundredths. He was in the final, and he he pulled that club out of the bag with – Ease perfect on the tree, take six thousandths at the stripe two light it up dead zero for the perfect run. David Meyer, by the way, nine and three thou under, made a very representative run to get the L. And that was on the heels of not one but two back to back rounds late in the 30 grander, where David Meyer lit, lit it up, trip zip perfect in both the quarters and the semis and then um, gets the tables turned on him by peeps pennington in the final pretty wild ending to a, a pretty incredible week. Yeah.
1: It was a very wild ending and certainly, you know, something you just don't see. Yeah. You know, they they mentioned that it was peeps third uh, perfect run of his career. None of which I can assure you was, uh, was held wide open. So, you know, those kind of things happen just when you're driving really well and making great runs, but, you're typically just abusing someone in the other lane to, to make that perfect run happen that really wasn't the case here uh, from an abuse standpoint because David Meyer made a really solid run and he made solid runs he he did that throughout the day and obviously throughout the weekend uh, it, it actually was a was a part of the deciding factor to award him with the uh, Kyle Seipel never give up award so That was uh, it was really cool to see David get that and uh, certainly a West Coast guy that that I'm sure had a a tremendous amount of uh, respect and appreciation for Kyle and what he has created for the West Coast, what he helped create for the West Coast and what he meant to just bracket racing and sportsman racing in general. So good for David. Congrats on that really cool award and that's, that's probably even better than the winner's check to get something like that, but what can you say about peeps uh, peeps was texting me a little bit at montgomery the weekend prior and um you know he'd see a run he'd ask me he asked me what happened on a run i was four above and got beat by 11 thou and i'm like man i don't know I'm, uh, something stupid happened i i think the guy put the front end in the lights because i you know i can screw it up with the best of them but i typically don't think i'm ahead and i'm behind 11 um might get behind a few thou here and there so i'm like i don't know i, I Really don't I still can't figure out what happened because he stopped on me and he he still went a hundred and whatever mile an hour that he had been running on his wide open runs. And he said, Well, just quit doing stupid stuff and win the race. I mean, this it was some of the best advice I've ever gotten. You know, I got good advice from you one time, Luke. And um, you asked me one time, what happened? I said, I couldn't run the dial in. You said, Well, why the hell did you have it on the car? <laughs> if you can't run it, why did you? Ha- why was that the number you had on there? If you couldn't run it, I said, you know, that's a really good point. Really good question.
0: That's the. So, I mean, I, I'm a. I'm a. I'm an excellent advice giver. I at one time famously told Jeff Rooks. He asked me, "What would it take to beat me?" And I told him, Jeff, you got to make better runs. <laughs>
1: simple as that <laughs> every once in a while you get some really good advice from a good racer and you need to listen to it uh unfortunately i didn't uh I execute the plan that peeps laid out but he obviously did uh uh you know he's always one of our picks you know we anytime you he's at a big money race where we're always like oh you know peeps is solid We think peeps could be one of the winners one of the days and certainly it was no different here and then he goes up out and does it and wraps up the weekend in style. I shot him a text and congratulated him. And he said, uh, you know, just trying to just trying to hold up our name, you know, included me in that. And I said,
0: you know, let's not fool
1: ourselves. You are the Pennington now. it's not me. It is him. So I appreciate uh, I appreciate him keeping Penningtons in a winter circle and uh really proud of Peeps for wrapping up his weekend in style and, uh, and getting that 30 K win with a perfect lap. That's, uh, that's pretty awesome. Something he don't, he don't talk much about what he's done on the racetrack, but someday he'll, he'll be able to talk about that to his kids. That's
0: what we're here for. It's so that it's so that people don't have to talk about themselves. We'll, we'll do it for
1: them. Yeah. We're doing a good job of that. Talking, <laughs> talking about all these great performers. Speaking of great performers there, the, the Spring
0: Fling million is is not one where Peter and his staff claim or name an MVP, which is one of my favorite things about the fling events. If just from my vantage point, if you were to select an MVP from the the five days of the Spring Fling, uh, I think you can make an argument for Chris Whitfield. He was deep several times. I think you could really make an argument for Timmy Markklu and Jeff Sarah. obviously Sarah, no surprise, but those two, Mark of glue and Sarah, they went as many rounds as you could possibly go without like really getting paid. Mark glue specifically, the, the dragster race that I had mentioned earlier, Jim Glenn, I think Glenn was like nine total in that final. Um, Mark of glue was runner up. And again, there was no split. So the winner got a 40 or $50,000 dragster, the runner up got a free entry to next year's million, which is great. It's also like 38 to $48,000 less value than that dragster. Big swing, right? Yeah. I think it was two days later, Mark Glue was in the semis of the 30 grander that Whitfield ultimately won. He lost the round before the split in the million and he advanced to the final eight cars in the last 30 grander. So like, let's take nothing away. Timmy Mark had an amazing weekend and probably had a good weekend financially. But like, if any of those four wind lights come on, it's probably a $10,000 swing and none of them came on. So- Rough ending, but again, like nobody went more rounds. And Jeff Sarah, very much the same way. Um, he was a semifinalist on the day that Lucas Walker won. He was a quarterfinalist, I believe, the next day. In fact, the day Lucas won, I believe Jeff had two entries in at six. One at three, none in the final. Two at seven, one at four, none in the final. Uh, and then also lost at 13 cars in the million. And it's no surprise when Jeff Sarah turns on wind lights and when Jeff Sarah is a candidate for MVP. But I'm just here to tell you, like, as an eyewitness to this, I don't get, I, I'm not everywhere that Jeff Sarah is. I don't get to see this show week in and week out. But when I do, and it really got hammered home this weekend in Vegas, he's driving two, two cars that are foreign to him. And you can see the numbers. That's one thing, particularly on the day that he had both cars in late. It, it seemed like he went a stretch of, four rounds in two entries without being worse than like 004. I mean, just set up ridiculously tight on the tree and just keeps turning it low, 00, after low, 00, after low, 00, just unconsciously. And I know that I've talked about this before, but the manner in which Jeff Sarah goes about it is unique and insanely impressive. I watched the million he finally turned it red, the round that he lost at 13. I believe it was the round prior to that. He's going 460s, but he's dialed 460 something. Who knows what he could go? Maybe go 440 for all I know, right? That's what it looks like. Um, but he's paired with a 420, 430 opponent, you know, some blower pro charger thing. And I see them pulling the water, and I thought, here's where Jeff gets a little bit more honest. And I look down, and not only has he not dialed down, he's dialed up like two more from the previous round. Thought, oh my God. You he go six under, eight under. I don't know, right? And I am sitting in the bleachers at about the 400 foot mark. They're both green. Jeff's low double O, and I'm telling you, it's just past 3:30, right? Jeff, Sarah, I'm watching Jeff, Sarah in the car, and his head didn't move. Like never got a look back prior to half track, and he just kicks the throttle twice and then looks. It's like, hey, I'm holding so much. I know I got Got to get rid of some, no matter where that dude's at. Kills <laughs> a little bit, gets a look around. And I mean, think about how quickly all of that's happening at that point. And I watch him take double O to be dead on. <laughs> I'm just like, people don't realize how difficult that is and how easy he makes it look. And when you combine the caliber of runs that he makes, Run after run after run, and the way that he goes about it, and the way that it has to, on some level, get in everyone's head. I don't. I I am growing more and more convinced with each passing week that, in an age where parody reigns supreme, I am more and more convinced each time I see him that Jeff Sarah is playing a different game, is operating on a whole different level. Like the only comparison that I can make to what I'm watching, and this will ring true for you, Jeff. I don't know if it'll ring true for you, but that you can relate to this because we lived it. The only comparison I've got for what I'm seeing is Scotty Richardson, like 2005, where he can do zero wrong, is playing at a different level, is beating everyone at their own game, making everyone play his game. If I watched Scotty in that era, like I watched somebody lay down one total beside him and lose, that's where Jeff Sarah is at today, and and that's really really rare air, in my opinion.
1: It is extremely rare, and again, we we've talked about this quite a bit on the show, and and obviously we'll continue to talk about it as long as he continues to turn on wind lights. But the guy definitely is playing a different game. He's he's playing a game that you know was played quite a bit uh, as you said two decades ago but anymore the racers and the equipment so much better you can't get away with the things that, that jeff sarah is doing but he still gets away with it <laughs> he still makes it work round after round you know you you hold numbers because you want control of the race you want to you want to decide Uh, if you should get there, or if you should get behind based on where your opponent is, and you might hold numbers sometimes to cover up a little inconsistency on the car, the tree, but Jeff's just doing it for sport. I mean, he's getting over control of the race. He's getting dangerous control of it. When you can go six under against a car half a second faster than you, and you're still doing it and still making it work. Uh, and it, it ain't like you can just always look over, look back in one of those cars at that. You, you look over, but you don't always look back. And like you said, he kicked it a couple of times before he even looked at, it's, it's really, um, it's super impressive what what he is capable of doing in a race car. You know, Maybe the kicking it twice before he ever looked was, again, just a testament to his ability and that he recognized when he left, I destroyed the tree. And let me go ahead and get rid of some of this early because there's a good chance my 600s is now seven or eight because I I could have a 10 or 20 advantage on the starting line with this crush. So, uh, you know, it's just, again, so much fun to watch. You know, Johnny Ezel, capable of holding big numbers, setting it down to dead on, he's impressive. Um, Scotty in the early 2000s, as you mentioned, Adam Davis, another guy that will put a lot of numbers in the bank and and you know, you you I can get a little cocky and think, well, he can't hold all that on me. Yeah, he can't even hold on me and anybody else he wants to. He's that good. Very few people have that kind of talent. And Jeff is showing it at a level that pretty much no one's matching these days. I mean, it's it's really cool to to see what he is uh what he's willing to go out there and do, you know. I just most of us aren't willing to, Luke. No, hundred
0: percent. It's it's funny you draw that correlation because we just got done singing the praises of, of Peeps Bennington. I had a round with Peeps several years ago at Huntsville, where I don't remember he had some kind of issue, but like we had just run and he came back around on his second entry and dialed up a U. And I remember looking at the dial in and just kind of snickering in my head, going, "There is no way that you were going to beat me down that." I was wrong. He did. <laughs> and so that's a unique skill set. But as a, we've talked on on Jeff Sarah before, like, and I've said this before. There there is a method to the madness in terms of the caliber of runs that he is making and the manner in which he's doing it. You know, again, typically holding so much, it puts a tremendous amount of pressure on opponents in an, in a way that is unique, right? Like, I feel like. It is almost inevitable that you get the feeling that you have to approach around differently against Jeff Sarah than anyone else. And that's certainly advantageous to him. But at the same time, to your point, Jed, the amount of pressure that he puts on himself. Like you, when you hold that much, you have to, you have no choice but to be perfect at both ends of the racetrack. And he continually executes at that level. It's just. Like I said, the more I watch, the more impressed I am, and, and and this coming off a weekend where he didn't win anything, like and just watching him blew me away. So I thought it was worth noting.
1: Um, yeah, and Luke, real quick uh, to add to that, you're, he's doing it in an age when we talk about some of those other names that we just talked about, or I talked about, they were doing it in an age where everybody didn't always run the dial in. He's doing it in a time where everybody can run what's on the board, at least that. And sometimes under it, a lot of the times under it, which makes it so much trickier to do what he's doing and he's still pulling it off. Impressive.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, One
0: kind of broad takeaway from the, the Spring Fling Million, this was my first Fling event post-Kyle, right? And so I can't speak to what the the atmosphere was like at Columbus or at Bristol last season. Um, And I don't mean this in a derogatory way to to Peter or that staff at all. They do an amazing job. It is 100% the well-oiled machine. I, I think it is the best format, sequence, like everything. Every step down the line, it's the best race in the country. It's different. It, 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 and I guess that's inevitable, but it didn't hit me until we were there. Like I, I've been to I've been to Vegas, I don't know, a dozen times racing. And I have very few memories from that facility that don't include Kyle Seipel on some level, right? And so I thought about Kyle a lot while we were there. We just couldn't couldn't help it. And then specifically the, the fling weekend, the, when you, when we were around Kyle Seipel, like, Hey, everybody can, can attest to the fact that when you talk to Kyle, you felt like you're the most important person in the world, right. In his world, just that, that presence, but his demeanor and laid back atmosphere, like he was so much fun to be around and it filtered through, filtered through the whole facility, the whole event. Right. And, to i think it was a it it really smacked me in the face that that's gone that he's gone probably more so this weekend than than any other and i think it's a testament to that staff to pull things together and put on such an incredible race when there is obviously a void that could just never be replaced
1: excellent Observation, Luke. Uh, and I, I think obviously Kyle's presence is missed everywhere a fling goes or, or everywhere his buddies are racing that he would typically go. But I think it's more so in Vegas. And, you know, you got Team Mexico that comes up, Team Canada that comes down, all the West Coast flavor out there. There was never a time when Kyle wasn't surrounded by someone that either just wanted to come by and say hello or meet him because of his legendary status in the sport. Uh, Certainly relive some old memories. You know, you'd come in the tower, he'd have four or five of his West Coast buddies hanging out and they're laughing and cutting up and talking about stuff that happened decades ago. Team Mexico, wanting a picture with him in the stands where he was surrounded by 30 or 40 team members. And, you know, it's just his impact on that event was so much more than just helping create it it was it was his presence that people longed for you know just the the opportunity to talk to him touch him take a picture laugh with him and then you know the the whole match race thing with Peter and and the the exotic car that he would always go pick and it was a, he had an unbelievable unique ability to go out and and find the most interesting car in the pits and and get it out there on the racetrack and and beat Peter with it you know what I mean he's beating okay. Peter beyond okay the missing element
0: of that that I think only Kyle could pull off is talking the owner of said crazy vehicle into letting him wheel it
1: oh yeah. <laughs> that's a great point you know it was like it, it didn't ever even seem hard for him you know he would have a conversation with him next thing you know they're up there watching him beat and bang on it and do this big burnout big smoky burnout and eating their tires and parts up and they're just loving it laughing along with him so i i think that's a great point that you make and and his presence his influence on the sport you know, couldn't be matched really uh, from what he's accomplished in and out of the car. But aside of that, I think people just genuinely love being around him and not being able to be around him is probably the, the part that hurts the most.
0: No, 100%. And that, I feel like that event is, is his baby. You know, like I, I think part yes. of you know, his, his purpose in, in co-promoting those events was to bring big dollar racing to the West coast. and And that's, Obviously, a, a legacy that will live on. But yeah, it was. Um, I don't know. I maybe I should have anticipated that coming in, but it definitely um, hit me harder than than I anticipated. Um, one thing that Kyle, I'm sure, was smiling about was the turnout, the uh, the the support of this year's spring fling million. It exceeded our expectations, Big Jed, and I thought you know, compared to the, a lot of the people that I was talking to, our expectations were lofty. Um, two weeks ago, we came on the show, made our predictions for car count, um, both the million dollar main event and the surrounding races far exceeded either of our expectations. I think I was slightly higher than you were in our predictions. So I I'll take credit. I got closer, but neither of us, uh, predicted that they have a 280 cars in the million. That's the most in several years. In uh, nearly 600 entries on uh, Thursday, I believe was the biggest day. I want to say it came in at 570 something in that range. Um, I think you had picked 450-ish. I had guessed 500-ish, and uh, we were both considerably lower than the actual turnout.
1: Yeah, I don't think any of us or either of us had a a, a real good um, feel for how the double entries would would impact things. It that- was obviously.
0: That was yeah. the bulk of it. Cause what's crazy about how big those numbers were is that you'd ride through the pits and, and we know what that race looks like. Obviously, Vegas is a huge facility. So even with five, 600 entries, like it's never full, but the pits looked much more scarce than in years past yeah. because there weren't as many cars on the ground, but this was the first year that you could double same car, same driver. And I was blown away. I got the impression that Peter and Staff were blown away by the percentage of cars on the grounds that got doubled. I this is just like with the naked eye, but it was a little bit easier to tell the way that they had the the, the running groups broken up, because basically all the doubles ran together, all the singles ran together. I think it's um I think it's very realistic to say that. Seventy percent of the field in the thirty granders were double entries. Like only thirty percent of the field would be single entered cars. Now that probably those numbers probably came a little bit closer together in the million, but I did not anticipate, especially coming off of um, four size race at Tucson where doubles were allowed and just not not a tremendous percentage of the field took advantage of that. It was a complete one eighty like the the vast majority of cars and racers were doubled in in Vegas and I don't think anybody expected that coming in
1: yeah I really didn't have a feel for that Luke um there was there was it was a highly utilized option for sure and to to kind of quantify a little bit about what you just said you know basically a third you felt like was single entered so you know let's say 180 racers were single entered, went down the track once and 180 went down the track twice. Um, So basically half the field decided to double, which made the singles end up being a third of the total. And that's about the way it looked online. You know, you never really can tell, but online it looked that way. You have seen quite a bit of racers go down twice. In reality, if, and pretty much everybody comes from distance for that race, loop No, so, that's
0: what I was going to argue. Like I think it makes sense when you zoom yeah. out. From it.
1: right. Yeah, in reality, that's the 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 most inexpensive racing you can do is that second entry. You <laughs> you know, it costs the same amount of fuel to get there and race once as it does to get there and race twice. Uh, you know, hotel and eats and all those things. Yep. So once you're there, you might as well go ahead and and buckle up and and make you take you a couple of shots at it. It looked like most of the field or at least half the field did that, which turned out to be most of the field.
0: Yeah, no, on one hand, you could say, God, it costs more to get to the racetrack than ever. And I do think that kept some people away. But the flip side of that is once you have made the decision to go and perhaps this is flawed logic, but I do think this is racer logic is like, well, hell. I'm four grand deep getting here. What's another 700 bucks? Let's double.
1: (laughs) Really? Yeah. It makes sense. And you know, you, we, we talked about on the show two weeks ago, wondering how much East coast, uh, how many East coast racers would travel.
0: That crowd looked pretty darn good. That crowd was every bit as strong as normal. Like I, I didn't come up with many quote unquote East coast racers that typically make that trip that, did not this year? uh If if they were down anything in terms of physical cars on the property, I would say that the majority of that discrepancy actually came from the you want to say local racers, but out on the west coast, nothing is local, right? That those guys are driving as far as we are, it just doesn't feel like it. Um, but I think <laughs> the, the the cars that were quote unquote missing largely did come from the western half of the country. Um, but and the, the borders opening yeah. up was huge. Yes, the borders opening up did play a role. And the doubles were the the biggest part of that. I was I was really um, surprised. I guess, I think, and, and maybe I shouldn't have been, but at the um, the magnitude of double entries, and it's interesting too. Like I mentioned in the million, which makes sense again that the doubles weren't quite as prevalent because it's it's very expensive to double. But with that said, I would say it was you know if it was 70-30 um, in the the surrounding races, it wasn't. Um, 50-50 in the million. I'd say it's like 60-40 doubles to to singles. And when you zoom out in the vacuum, like you look at the last seven cars remaining, six of them were double entered, same car, same driver. And the seventh was Doug Foley. I believe Foley just had one entry, but Bryson Scruggs was doubling his car. So his his car was doubled. So each of the last remaining seven, all double entries on, on some level. So you, you could take that information and say, wow, it's a it's a big advantage to double, even with this unique format where doubles run doubles, singles run singles for the first couple of rounds. So you could you could surmise there's a big advantage to double. You could also make the counter-argument that by and large the best racers are going to run twice in some form or fashion. And if no one could double enter, everyone's single, it's probably fairly likely that you would have those same seven racers in late. You know, I mean, that's, that's not inconceivable. Where do you stand on that big Jed? Were these racers in as a result of having two shots or were these racers in because they were the best time racers there, period? The
1: answer is yes. (laughs) Uh, The best racers had two shots and all that leads to them being in the late rounds. (laughs) So having two shots. Yes, absolutely. Luke, that's a, you know, especially in today's racing environment that is so tight and so difficult to maneuver through, and trying to avoid that bomb of a killer run somewhere in the race that that is going to beat you. And you know, you get that one behind you, and then you keep going out and making good laps, and your second entry uh, moves through the field and and works its way into the late rounds. There's an advantage there to the to the great racers having two shots and. Certainly, I think the the double entry policy uh, did not uh, hurt that whatsoever. It only helped it.
0: I, I know we're short on time. We're going to get out of here. The last thing that I wanted to talk about was the, the double entry policy as a whole. And we alluded to this on a previous show because theoretically, like on paper, the procedure that Peter and the Fling staff came up with, I believe, to be the fairest. Way to go about double entries. My fear was that, and it's complicated. Like you, you read through and you go, "How are, how on earth are you going to administer this?" And yet, it should come as no surprise, given that staff and the the, the experience that they have, and just the way that they think through every variable. This was very well managed, right? And and the. The car numbers that they give out to everyone and breaking it into groups made this easy for all of us to follow. So it was easy to administer, and I do believe this is coming from someone who single-entered every day at the million. I ran a Corvette once. Um, I've said in the past, I feel like at races that allow double entries, same car, same driver, everyone tends to double, which was the case again here. Seemingly everyone, again, a, a majority of the field, and as a result of that. I don't feel like it is necessarily an advantage to double enter. I always felt like as a single entered racer, it was a significant disadvantage to single, particularly when the fields are big and rounds get spread out by several hours, right? The, 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 the feeling that I can come into a blind round, you know, a, a blind first round, but I'm late in line and I have to race somebody that just ran, right? And is coming back on their second entry. I'm at a disadvantage, right? Same thing if they've run two, three times since the last time that I went down the racetrack and we meet up second or third round, right? Um, so in, that, in those instances, I felt like it was a disadvantage to single entry. The way that they broke this up as a single entry car, I couldn't race a double-entered car until round three. And at that point, the rounds are close enough together that I feel like the advantage is minimal, if not non-existent. And the way that that was executed, I loved it, and i don't I don't see any flaws in that plan, specifically on the thirty granders where there's you know five hundred plus cars and in, in it you could literally run first round at nine am and second round at three pm. I will say this though, in the million itself, they utilized that same format with two hundred and eighty entries. And it felt a little overmanaged in in this way. like with that format, as fair as it is, there's four by runs each round. There's different colors called the lanes, and like with that, with 280 cars total, there was no run group that filled the lanes, right? So things went relatively quickly, and it just seemed a little bit broken up. And I don't know necessarily for good reason because, again, as a single entry racer, I, I can tell you, like I felt like it was a disadvantage to be singled against doubles when there's 600 cars in the million itself. There's 280. The rounds are back to back in a relatively quick progression and there was a time trial that morning so there's never that blind run situation i felt like it might have been a little bit overkill like i know you can't necessarily implement one day of one way of doing things one day and change it the next but i almost feel like the perfect solution is to for for not all races not just the 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 fling is to utilize a system like they did when there's say i don't know 400 450 plus cars. And when it gets lower than that, just kind of go back to okay, as long as you are down not track twice you're fine, right? Like I feel like there's a happy median there and there's a breaking point. Now how you would explain that from one day to the next, I don't know. But I was a huge fan of the format when the fields were big. It felt like a little much when the field condensed.
1: I get that completely. Um that many breaks in uh in category for a 280 car race. Yeah, that could that could definitely feel overmanaged. So I understand that, you know, you had pro and then uh, double inner door cars, single inner door cars double inner dragsters, single inner dragsters. So you got a lot of breaks there in category and uh, looking looking at that from the outside looking in, I would I could definitely see where uh, the the crowds were really small in the lanes. Those lanes hold a ton of cars in Vegas. So you you can have 75 cars in the lanes there and it looks like the race is about over with so i get that <laughs> that mentality and that might be something that uh that those guys need to look at and see if um you know under 300 car fields which they won't see very often A million is probably going to be the 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 lone example of of them being under 300 cars so they might need to look at that because I, I can see exactly how you'd feel the way you feel about that. But um this double entry policy did look smooth, Luke, for the big car counts. Uh, they did a really good job of how they called them to the lanes. And it sounded like the racers responded really well, came when they were supposed to in their groups very well. They spelled and, it
0: out so plainly and clearly, and it was so easy for the racers that, like, I don't think we could screw up like I, I'm not I'm not bashing the system at all I think it is the fairest way to do it and, and and for the first time implementation it was unbelievable I just think the obviously the first time that you do anything like there's going to be tweaks and, and that's one that again like no complaints necessarily even with the small field this is probably the quote unquote fairest way to do it it just seemed like a little bit much when the field got small
1: I get that completely. So, Galat will be interesting, Luke. That's going to happen next week, and um, you know the new double entry policy going into place in a in a facility that is nice, super nice, and and will hold a really good crowd. But you start getting up there over three fifty there, and things get a little tight in the pits, and parking's uh, getting challenging, uh, especially with the size of the rigs today. So it'll be interesting to see if the rig number is down, but the entry count is up and that will obviously be utilization, high utilization of the double entry policy. So (laughs) I'm very interested to see how that works out here in the East Coast, uh, where car counts have not been unbelievable. Uh, They've been good, been solid for a lot of these bigger money races, but they have not been overwhelming to where you, you just say, oh my gosh, this is, you know, like like we saw to the start of 2020 and then certainly 2021. So I'm um, very interested to see how the works out. I know it'll be great, but I'm really interested to see how it works out from a car account standpoint with this new double policy. Can't wait to see how, uh, how that one works for them.
0: I think the goal, obviously the goal is to have 300 rigs and 500 entries, right? Like that is making, the best utilization of the resources available to you at the facility, right? Um, And it will be interesting to watch. I I will also say, Jed, I don't know, I don't know that we'll learn much from it because I feel like maybe the the Spring Fling Million is is different being in Vegas, but I, I feel like the Fling brand across the board has elevated itself to a point where all four Fling events in each season are, have become very much destination races. And so I don't, I could be wrong. I think they're going to have a huge crowd at every one of them. And I don't think that that's necessarily anything that we can apply to any other event. Like, I think that that stuff is just on a different level with the brand that they've created and how much of a destination each of those events have become.
1: Yep. Very good point, Luke. It is certainly uh, the the influence that Peter has on the event and what Kyle had and the, the spring fling team. You, uh, you know, you see quite a bit of New York and, and Massachusetts and those type racers at their events, wherever they're held. And, uh, that hasn't always been the case. Those guys haven't always traveled like that, but there's a, there's a high level of respect and appreciation for Peter and, and what he and Kyle created and then a high level of trust as well you, you know you're going to get everything they say you're going to get so that's leading the good crowds for them we'll continue to and we look forward to talking to uh, to the listeners about Goliath when that happens and can't wait to see how that one plays out for them and Luke I think that about wraps us up it's 10 30 central time full transparency
0: producer Mark's been asleep for an hour I think
1: we gotta wrap this up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is probably not super happy right now, and I understand it. So sorry, producer Mark. We love you, and we appreciate all you do for us in the show. Um, he had to sit and sit and listen to me talk to myself for a little while the first segment, and now us gas bagged it like this. So we are. Uh, I, we're, are we skipping shouts? We. we
0: yeah, let's we wrap up. this thing up. Okay. Yeah,
1: let's let's skip shouts. It's late. So Mark, there you go. A little favor for you. And uh, probably the listener, too, because you are tired of hearing me talk, for sure, and us together. So, guys, be sure to uh, reach out and tell us what you think of the show there on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page. We need to hear from you. You know, you're not tweeting us enough. You're not Facebooking us enough. Um, And I don't want to challenge the listeners, but my goodness, we we got the best listenership in podcast, uh, sportsman drag racing podcast talk. So, I mean, really y'all got to do a better job reach out to us and just just say hey and say hey love the show hate the show whatever just tell us something and um we're skipping shouts. so certainly if uh if you like to use the twitter and who doesn't uh luke and i are active there on twitter so reach out to us i i asked and begged for some you know some tags and hashtag whatever and i think i got one so I want you guys to tweet me. I really need to be tweeted, and I know Luke does too. So Luke is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. I I am at JP11X. If you heard that I was talking by myself on the first segment and you turned that off, I don't blame you. I mentioned it at the end, and I will mention it at the end of this segment. Today, uh, we're uh, recording Wednesday, and it is uh, Big Nasty's birthday, Kyle Seipel's birthday Happy heavenly birthday to our homie, our buddy, our friend. We love him. We miss him. And we know he's lighting it up upstairs and uh, and showing everybody a good time on his birthday. So, folks, have a great week. We appreciate you listening. And we can't wait to talk to you again real soon about some more Sportsman Drag racing.